This is the Six Gun Justice Podcast with wordslingers Paul Bishop and Richard Brosh. Welcome to episode three of the Six Gun Justice Podcast. We're happy to have you riding along with us. Want to let everybody know we're available on all of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and all the others. I'm Paul Bishop, and writing with me is my co-host, Richard Prosh. Howdy, Rich. How are you? I'm great, Paul. Excited about our featured discussion today, which will be part one of a deep dive into what we are calling the New West. We'll be covering those current Western writers who are delivering some of the best six-gun action ever. When we talked about starting the Six Gun Justice podcast, we said we wanted to honor the traditional Westerns we love, but to also explore the current resurgence of the Westerns today. Listeners may want to have paper and pencil or note-taking app on your smartphone open, because we are going to be talking about a full posse of writers in their books today, some of whom you're going to want to track down later. Before we get to our feature discussion, Rich, what Westerns have you been reading or watching since we were last together? I recently finished a title from Five Star called Muskrat Hill. I really enjoyed it. It's by Texas native Vicki Rose, writing as Easy Jackson. Here's the setup. Near the turn of the 20th century, the rustic Texas town Muskrat Hill plays host to a series of gruesome murders. The hometown residents are gripped with fear, paranoia. The book introduces characters young Kit Robinson, his pal Whitey, Kit's dad Pope, and a half-Comanche marshal named Asa Jenkins. These are the good guys. The book isn't a Western in the traditional sense, so I'm off the beaten track a little bit here, but bear with me. It's a historical mystery set in the Wild West era. Recalling classics like True Grit, Shane, or To Kill a Mockingbird, the narrative point of view is Kit's, and his innocence and charm balance out the heavy themes of violence and betrayal that are at work. I couldn't help but fall in love with ex-Texas Ranger Pope, who reluctantly sets about solving the awful crimes when he would rather be picking his guitar at a regular shindig in his general store, and feel his frustration as his friends and relatives turn on each other once the tension starts to mount. So as you can imagine, it's the kind of small town thing that some of us who have lived there have gone through. The finger pointing, the suspicion, everything propagated by these murders becomes an excuse to unveil long-held prejudices, racial, sexual, religious prejudice. It's all expertly rendered by Jackson, who pulls no punches. Woven tightly into the mystery are several nail-biting action scenes. One of them involves a pit full of snakes, had my heart racing. Another one toward the end of the book tricked me into guessing at two or three possible outcomes that were completely off base. I think that's the way a good mystery ought to work. Easy Jackson should be praised for this wonderful slice of fine literature disguised as genre entertainment. How about you, Paul? What have you been reading? Actually, I've been reading and watching. I finally caught up with a feature version of Mystery Road. It's a modern-day Australian Western with noir overtones. It features a very tough, cowboy-hat-wearing, gun-toting Aborigine detective named Juan. He's the only Aborigine to ever be promoted to the rank of detective, and he returns home to his depressed and really depressing hometown after spending time training in the big city. He's a man that's caught between both worlds because of the ethnicity issues on the police department, as well as now he is the man, and his neighbors and friends respond to him with suspicion. He walks right into the investigation of the murder of a young Aborigine girl. She's heavily involved in drugs and prostitution. 
stuff that he wasn't aware of when he actually lived in the town. It's stuff that's gone downhill since he's been gone. She doesn't matter to the other local police because she's just an aborigine, but she matters to Swan, and his digging leads into all kinds of nastiness. It also leads to one of the best gunfights I've ever seen in any Western or crime film. The movie was a slow burn, but riveting. It spawned a sequel called Goldstone, which I haven't seen yet, and a six-part Australian TV series. Both of them are definitely at the top of my to-be-watched queue. Paul, where did you see this? Was it? Did you watch it on DVD or a streaming service? You know, I actually picked it up off of Amazon Prime. It's been recommended to me several times. It really kept my interest despite the deliberate pace. Sounds great. I also want to recommend Where the Wildflowers Dance. This is another book from Five Star. It's the second book in Phil Mill Jr.'s Good Wind Trilogy, and it's due out this summer. So breezing in on the heels of Where a Good Wind Blows, his first book, Mills sets up the conflict really early. Before a half dozen pages are gone, bad man Jason Neal has his motive for vengeance. And heroes Sarah Meadows and box tea foreman Jake Summers set sail on kind of a star-crossed course. There's a lot to admire in Mills' writing. Very painterly descriptions, depictions of the open grassland around Chugwater, Wyoming, a working knowledge of cows, dialogue that rings true to the times, and there's a lot to be said for his gentle storytelling. This isn't a hard-boiled actioner, but Mills pulls it off. There is plenty of action, as Neil ruthlessly bullies the easygoing folks of Chugwater. And there is a fair spate of violence toward the end of the tale. But again, none of it ever overshadows the more uplifting spirit of the book. The love that blossoms between Sarah and Jake is the centerpiece. It's got a strong sense of place. It's got maniacal villains, a posse of virtuous characters you want to root for. It's good. Let's see now. You fell in love with a Texas Ranger in the last review. And in this review, you're really taken by the romance between Sarah and Jake. I think you're telling us a lot about your tastes here. (laughs) (laughs) These two are off the beaten trail a little bit from what I usually cover, but I really enjoyed both of them. What was the first Western that you read? The first Western that I read, I actually have on my shelf right now. It's not the exact same copy but it was a Whitman TV tie-in novel for Annie Oakley, The Ghost Town. My grandma had that on her shelf, and I believe it was probably my aunt, my dad's sister, who had that book growing up uh, when she was young. But I remember that book being on my grandma's shelf in the upstairs empty bedroom. She had a big weaving loom in that room, and you had to kind of squeeze by to get to the books. And I always do anything to get to a bunch of books, right? And so there was a pile of books on that shelf, and I would squeeze by, and I would look through all these books, a lot of Perry Mason books that she had, uh, some mysteries. And there was that Annie Oakley book. And I think that was probably the first Western that I read. Those Whitman juvenile books, they're still quite special. And many of them were written by authors who turned in really solid novels. Harry Whittington, H.A. DeRosso, and Steve Frazee with the Bonanza entry. Lots of guys that were better known for harder edge stuff. Those are really very collectible today. And there's a good reason for it. They're good books. I remember it being a good book. I did read it again as an adult, though I can't remember a whole lot about it. I read it right after Gina and I got married when I got this copy. I don't know what happened to that original copy, but I remember liking it, even though the protagonist was a girl. That didn't bother me. I just thought it was a fun book. How evolved of you. (laughs) (laughs) I started with the Louis L'Amour leatherette versions. 
that time you could do the book club. Yes. I found out that I liked Louis L'Amour and it was worth going into the book club. So those would come in every month. And of course, they would pile up because you couldn't keep up with them coming in every month. From there, I started looking around at some of the traditional stuff like Writers of the Purple Sage, which I didn't like. The Oxbow Incident, which I found absolutely fascinating because of the themes that it dealt with. Shane, which I was middle of the road about. Then I discovered Luke Short and Frank Gruber and Frank O'Rourke, the guys that wrote for the Pulps, and that's when my love of Western fiction really took off. Do you still have those Louis L'Amour leatherette book club editions? I'm ashamed to say I don't, and I would love to recreate that series again. It's just finding bookshelf space for them that is crazy. The prices are all over the place with those, too. If you can find them for a couple of bucks, or people th seem to think they're collectible and are trying to sell them for 40 50 bucks a pop. I actually now prefer the paperbacks with the really cool covers. The leather-up versions, as nice as they are, they really are a manufactured set. They don't have the personality the paperbacks do. They're all generically the same, which is kind of boring. So unless you buy books by the yard and you want to have that leatherette set sitting on your bookshelf, even though part of me would like to have them again, I also am very satisfied having the paperback versions, which I really love. I feel the same way about the Zane Grey books. You often see those Zane Grey sets that are hardcover yes. with the kind of plain gray or light white cover with the blue and red on the spine. They look really nice sitting together, but they all look the same. I'd rather have the paperback art. For me, I do judge a book by its cover. Even if I'm reading a book and it's a good book, if it doesn't have a good cover, I'm uncomfortable. I want to go out and find an edition that does have a good cover. I know it's weird, but that's that's the way it is, because I grew up on the mystery genre and covers by McGinnis and so many others that were just so spectacular that when I came over to the Western side, I was looking for the same kind of cover art, looking at the James Bama covers for some of the Westerns and, and things like that, which really impressed me. Would you rather read a paperback than on your Kindle? I love my Kindle. I read a lot on my Kindle, but there's also a lot of distractions on the Kindle. So if I pick up a paperback and go out in the backyard and sit in the chair and the, the umbrella in the sun, I'm completely away from all those other distractions and just get lost in the book, which is what I want to do. I agree. I'll get back to something that is directly on our path, and it's O'Rourke's Revenge. It's a kick-ass book from L.J. Martin, who's an established and solid storyteller. The book reads so smoothly, I whipped through it in a couple of sittings. It was originally published as a mass-market paperback in 2005 by Pinnacle, who's a publisher we're going to be talking about later in our feature. But it's been newly released as an ebook from Wolfpack Publishing. Because of the one-for-all and all-for-one family dynamics that are at the heart of this story. O'Rourke's Revenge kind of reminded me of the Sackett series by Louis L'Amour in that when one Sackett is facing trouble and overwhelming odds, all the Sackett can drop everything and come running. Maybe it's because my career in law enforcement that this appealed to me. For 20 years, I ran an investigative unit with 30 detectives. You get very close to your people in a specialized unit. And I know that even today, if I was in trouble, they would all come running and I'd do the same for them. L.J. Martin does a good job of illustrating this type of family tie, and it made O'Rourke's Revenge a real treat for me. But then I, too, read something that was a little different, a book called Whiskey When We're Dry. It was recommended to me by our Six-Gun Justice deputy, Steve Hawkinsmith, who writes the terrific Holmes on the Range series, which you and I have talked about before and, and really need to bring to the podcast. 
Great series. So whiskey when we're dry, it's a beautifully written blend of traditional Western and modern literary sensibilities. It's got grit, action, but it doesn't shy away from controversial themes that traditional Westerns don't acknowledge. It may not be for everyone, but it's a terrific story well told, and it's definitely a Western. Who wrote Whiskey When We're Dry? John Larison. Sounds good. A good example, perhaps, of the new West writers and Westerns we plan on talking about. With Western fiction thriving today and racking up impressive sales numbers, we wanted to go beyond the perennial favorite Western authors such as Louis L'Amour, Max Brand, and their contemporaries. These are the icons who form the backbone of the genre, and they are deservingly the standard by which all other Western writers are measured. However, these usual suspects also get more than their fair share of love and attention, which leaves many other Western writers out in the cold. Our goal in exploring the New West is to spotlight the bumper crop of current, or at least more current, Western writers who are also deserving our attention. As you and I have discussed, Paul, the internet has completely changed the game for Western novels and for a new breed of word-slinging indie writers, which is something we plan on covering next week in part two. But for this episode, we're going to be talking about today's Western writers with established track records and a large presence in traditional publishing. What we mean by traditional publishing is the big five publishers back in New York, those publishers who have been around forever and basically dominate the brick-and-mortar bookstores, as opposed to the indie writers who are making a name for themselves on the internet through ebooks and Amazon. Today, we're talking about the authors behind the Westerns you can find on the shelves in the brick-and-mortar bookstores, as well as other retailers. Some of these authors are writing more modern takes on the Western, like Longmire, for instance, but the great majority of them are working within the traditional storytelling form of the Western genre. That's what we're trying to spotlight today. These books and authors were obviously also available through internet retailers like Amazon, but it's their physical presence on the real bookshelves that tells us a lot about the current healthy state of the Western genre. And there's no question that the big dog in the traditionally current field is William W. Johnstone. When you consider an estimated three of every four Western paperbacks sold today are William W. Johnstone titles, it shows that their publisher, Pinnacle, which is an imprint of Kensington Publishing, sees Westerns as a hot commodity, and they know how to reach the audience for them. Pinnacle's understanding of how to sell genre fiction goes back to the men's adventure series of the 60s and 70s, such as Mac Bowl and the Executioner, which is the vanguard series they built the company on. So it's no surprise then that they know what they're doing when it comes to Westerns. However, the huge success of the Johnstone Westerns is due in part to an interesting process. Johnstone himself was a very prolific and popular writer in his lifetime, writing hundreds of books in many different genres. When he passed away, he left behind outlines and partially finished manuscripts for many more. At least that's the legend behind the legacy. And now Johnstone's niece, Joe Johnstone, who was his assistant for many years, does a terrific job working with Pinnacle editor Gary Goldstein to keep the Johnstone brand at the forefront of the Western genre. The bottom line is Johnstone Westerns are the genre juggernaut and have contributed greatly to keeping Westerns vibrant, available, and relatable to today's readers. Pinnacle also does an incredible job with the covers, and the physical attributes of the Johnstone paperbacks are top-notch. I have to admit, having around 100 Johnstone Westerns stacked up on a spare bookcase, I collect them not necessarily to read, but because they have some of the best cover art around today. I also picked most of them up secondhand, but almost all remain in very good condition because Pinnacle publishes them in tight, durable bindings and good cover stock. 
Pinnacle publishes three to four new Johnstone titles every month. Imagine that. It means they dominate the Western section of any given bookstore, literally taking up at least half the shelf space. That has got to be a brutal schedule to maintain. But Pinnacle seems to walk that tightrope pretty well. Some of the books they publish each month are new entries and continuing series. Some are new standalone Westerns, while others are often the beginnings of new series characters. The Johnstone Westerns are popular. There's hundreds of titles out there. It's kind of hard knowing where to start. Do you have any suggestions? Johnstone was incredibly prolific and very genre-diverse, which means there is some variation in readability. It's kind of inevitable. So while other readers' mileage may differ, and make no mistake, each of the many Johnstone series has its rabid fans. For me, there are two characters whose series are the keystones of the Johnstone brand. The Last Mountain Man series, which features a tough-as-buffalo hide character named Preacher, And you can see where this gets complicated. The Mountain Man series, featuring the adventures of Smoke Jensen. The books from either series can be read in any order and are fine examples of the best of the Johnstone Westerns. There's also a series featuring a character named Cotton Pickens, which takes a lighter, more humorous approach, which I enjoyed. And finally, there's a relatively new series featuring Hank Fallon. He's an ex-U.S. Marshal and ex-con whose prison-themed stories are well-written, tense, and tough-as-nails westerns. I really enjoy them. There's three books in that series so far, with a fourth to come. I think that just goes to show you how names of characters are so important in these books. Cotton Pickens, obviously, is a funny name for a a humorous book, whereas Hank Fallon, that sounds pretty tough. Not to pile on, but Pinnacle also has a regular schedule of releasing other new non-Johnstone Westerns, such as Terrence McCauley's Sheriff Aaron Mackey series, a couple great books there, and other paperback originals from top Western wordslingers like Sean Lynch, Brett Cogburn, and Easy Jackson, who I mentioned earlier. Terrence McCauley's a terrific writer. I worked with him when we were writing the fight card series of boxing noirs, and I was knocked out by his first Mackey Western, Where the Bullets Fly. In a parallel situation, when the best-selling Ralph Compton passed away in 1998, his literary legacy was turned into a brand by his publisher as well. Signet continues to publish new books written by other authors under the Compton banner until the brand was discontinued in 2016. Reviving the Compton brand by republishing older titles and bringing out some new titles by the end of the year, which Signet is doing, clearly shows Westerns are still in demand. Do you have any recommendations from the Compton stable, Paul? I have to admit I've read more Compton titles than Johnstone. The Compton books have a slightly harder edge, which appeals to me. Also, while there are some series characters within the Compton canon, there are far more standalone westerns. So this makes whittling down my favorites much more difficult, but I'll take a shot at it. Compton himself did create one series called The Sundown Riders. The main characters are a group of early Teamsters, which I thought was unusual. And Compton makes the adventures of freighting all kinds of goods and materials around the frontier involving and very exciting. Devil's Canyon is the first book in the series I read, and it got me hooked. Two more books written by Compton himself that I recommend are Six Guns and Double Eagles, about an early plot to destroy the nation's economy with fake gold, and The Dawn of Fury, which is close to Compton's magnum opus. Of the books written by other writers under the Compton brand, Striker's Revenge by Joseph A. West, Shotgun Charlie by Matthew P. Mayo, and The Omaha Trail by the highly revered Jory Sherman are all top-notch entertainments. Didn't you grow up in the cowboy way, Rich, on a ranch or a farm? 
Yeah, Paul, I grew up in Nebraska on a farm. We had lots of different things that we were involved with, including grain crops like corn and soybeans and oats. We raised alfalfa, hay, and hogs, but we also raised cattle. In fact, cattle were a primary source of income for my grandparents and my family. I can remember lots of weekends that the men would get together, corral all the cattle. Sometimes we'd mix neighbors' cattle and we'd do groups together, and we would run them through a chute like you would see in the movies only, the 19th. 60s, 1970s version of that, where we would dehorn, apply any kinds of medicine we needed to brand. Though we didn't have the brand you might see in the Western movies, we had an electric brand that was on a big extension cord. But I'm sure that smell is still the same that, you know, it harkens back to the 1800s. I've often thought about that smell of applying the brand. It's horrific. It's something you never forget. I don't know if you had any brothers, but did you chase them with the branding iron? We had a couple of mischievous older guys that would do different things. Most of it had to do with some of the things with cows, the dehorning and things like that, where you'd clop off a horn and throw it at a guy. So there was a playful sense amongst the neighbors. We all were friends. The thing that I remember the most about those days and those times getting together like that were the meal. The men would be outside working and the women would all get together inside and make these just wonderful spreads of jello salads and meats and potatoes and casseroles and things you could eat for Forever, and you would come out just full. And yet you had to go right back to work. And back then I could do that. Now I'd need a really long nap. What about your history in the cowboy tradition? I didn't have any. So when I got an opportunity to write my first book, it was for a Western series called Diamondback. I had met an editor of that series, a guy by the name of Raymond Obsfeld. He was a professor at Long Beach State, but he was also heavily involved in doing series work for Pinnacle, which we talked about last week. And he had this series called Diamondback, and I was talking to him at a writer's conference, and he gave me a shot. I don't know why, because I was a wannabe writer, but I really didn't have a background. I went home and I realized I had known nothing about being a cowboy or about Westerns. At that point, I'd read some Louis L'Amour, but nothing more. No other Western writers. I didn't own a pair of cowboy boots. I didn't own a cowboy hat. So I did what any red-blooded Englishman would do. I went out and I bought cowboy boots, and I went out and bought a cowboy hat. Right. And then I looked around for something to ride. Locally, I took some riding lessons for about three months, including spending some time with some folks from the LAPD mounted unit. So I actually learned how to ride. And then I signed up with a buddy for a week-long horse roundup to move the wild horses from their winter feeding ground in Northern California to their summer feeding ground in Central California. That was where I learned how to be a cowboy. From there on, I felt I'm not a fraud. I can write this stuff. That sounds wonderful. What an experience. Wow. And you learn things like trust your horse. It knows far better where to go than you do. Yes. And it's going to go there whether you want it to or not. <laughs> <laughs> I also learned do not be foolish and have the regular wranglers talk you to being in front of the herd when it's released for the first time. They say, you don't want to ride drag and eat all the dust, do you? Go ahead and go out in front of the herd and don't let them get by you. And mm -hmm. then they open the pen up and these horses come thundering out. And you go, what have I chosen to do? A good experience, lots of fun. And that was what led into my Western writing era. Why don't we take turns talking briefly about a current Western wordslinger we like, recommend one of their books, and see how many we can get through. You start. John Nesbitt teaches English and Spanish at Eastern Wyoming College. His 29th traditional Western, Great Lonesome, will be out from Five Star in May. He also has a couple of novellas and two collections of Western short stories, with a third on the way. John has won four Spur Awards and has a CD of Western songs recorded by the great W.C. Jameson. 
I read John's novels Death at Darkwater and The Stranger in Thunder Basin and North of Cheyenne back to back 10 years ago at least. Soon after, we struck up kind of a literary friendship based on some of his nonfiction writing textbooks that he's done for his teaching career. I think my favorite Nesbitt novels are Dark Prairie and Blue Springs, which is a contemporary Western. John is a very prolific writer and really, really good. Ralph Cotton is another author I really enjoy. You shouldn't confuse him with Ralph Compton, even though he has written several novels published under the Compton banner. Cotton is a very prolific and respected Western storyteller in his own right. His books are straightforward, solid action tales. He maintains his no-frill style is due in part to his own background as a construction worker, an iron worker, a second mate on a commercial barge, a teamster, a horse trainer, and a late minister. All hardworking jobs with no pretensions. Of his more than 70 books, I've enjoyed many in his Big Iron series featuring Ranger Sam Burrick, starting with Montana Red, although they can be read in any order. And a couple of his standalone westerns, Webb's Posse and Saber's Edge, really impressed me. Michael Zimmer won numerous awards, including a Western Heritage Wrangler Award from the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum for The Poacher's Daughter. Paul, I want to urge listeners to check out Michael's American Legends Collection. It's a series of six books with a seventh on the way this year, and it has a unique premise. Historically, during the FDR era of public works programs, there was a program for the nation's unemployed writers called the Federal Writers Project, the FWP. Now, this is real history. The early focus was to create a series of state guidebooks. In the late 1930s, the project created a hidden legacy of America's past called the American Life Histories Project and the Slave Narrative Collection. More than a thousand life stories were gleaned from men and women across the nation. But with uncanny dexterity, Zimmer has interwoven fiction into the fact with these transcripts from his fictional American Legends Collection, giving us City of Rocks, Rio Tinto, Leaving Yuma, Miami Gundown, Charlie Red, Billy Pinto's War. My favorite is Charlie Red, which features a kind of Katherine Hepburn-style character who comes up against a Bogert-style cowboy. So great stuff that harkens back to some familiar character types that we love. That sounds interesting. I'm unfamiliar with it, so I'm going to have to give that a try. My next recommendation is L.J. Martin. His book, O'Rourke's Revenge, I talked about at the top of the show, but during his career, he's written over 30 Westerns and been published by Bantam, Avon, Pinnacle, and more. He became disillusioned, like many of us, with the way he was being treated by the big New York publishers. Believing there had to be a better way, he jumped into the indie field by co-founding Wolfpack Publishing with his buddy Mike Bray. Since then, he's released many of his prior novels, as well as new ones through Wolfpack, his work is outstanding, plus he's a heck of a guy and a good friend. Aside from O'Rourke's Revenge, I recommend Nemesis and my favorite of his novels, El Lazo. I love Larry's books. My next entry is Matt Mayo. I met him through his early Black Horse Westerns, which were published in Great Britain in really compact, neat little hardbacks that were incredibly hard to find. The first was Winter's War, which is now available in an ebook edition. After that, it was through a series of wonderful Western nonfiction collections, larger-than-life true tales that Mayo brought together. Through those books, I became a real fan. I followed him through the years, enjoying his Ralph Compton contributions, five of them. Most recently, his incredible novel, Stranded. Talk about a man-versus-nature plotline. Wow. I'm not the only one who enjoyed the heck out of that novel that was billed as a young adult offering when it came out. Stranded won the 2018 Western Heritage Wrangler Award 
a spur, a peacemaker, and several others, all well-deserved. I'd recommend any of Matthew's books, but Stranded is the place to begin. If a book is labeled a historical Western, and you've mentioned that several times, I can have an unfair knee-jerk reaction equating historical with boring. However, the books by one of my favorite Western scribes, Charles G. West, are classed as historical Westerns, which proves how wrong knee-jerk reactions can be. West books do play out against a realistic historical landscape, but they're also filled with action and great characters. West's first Western, Stonehand, was published in 1998. Since then, he's written over 40 more Westerns, with new ones appearing regularly alongside reprints of his others. Day of the Wolf, Stonehand, and Black Eagle are all top-notch reading, but I could easily name a bunch of other books by West with the same qualification. Did you watch the Western TV shows growing up? Bonanza, Gunsmoke, The Rifleman was just off the air, so I wasn't in the heyday. For me, it took a while to get away from my fascination with espionage shows like The Man from U.N.C.L.E. I didn't really play Cowboys and Indians. I played The Man from U.N.C.L.E. versus Thrush. It was a big spy game. James Bond, whatever. It's still the same thing, going around and shooting bad guys, but it was a different era. When I began to read Western fiction, that's when I went back and started to find some of those shows in syndication and found a love for them and was absolutely astounded by some of the writing in them. It was so good. In those days, before a lot of the network censors got involved, they were allowed to be morally ambiguous with plots and stories and resolutions. They expected you as a viewer to think it through for yourself, which I just found fascinating. I can remember from the time I was eight years old until probably 10, for about two years there, a friend and I really got into the Marx Best of the West action figures and play sets. We traded figures, the big 12-inch Johnny West and Indian figures. I had a Geronimo. He had a couple others. The horses were a mixed bag because some of them had wheels. Some of them didn't move at all. Some of them were so articulated, you couldn't get them to pose or stand up even. They would just kind of collapse. I had the ranch that was made out of paper and cardboard that also just collapsed. They were fun, kind of cheesy toys, but we had lots of cowboy adventures with those. And they stimulated the imagination. Yes. It was absolutely imaginative play. Yeah, and for me, Johnny West was Lucas McCain. I played the rifleman with Johnny. He became the, the Chuck Connors character. When I look back at those days, I'm fascinated by the way the shows leveraged their marketing arm between lunchboxes and action figures and especially the gun sets. Every TV show had a cap gun set tied into it which would go along with the gimmick gun that whatever the hero used. All those shows seem to have a special gun for their hero. And that translated into sales, which was really the first time that type of marketing was leveraged. It even started with Roy Rogers and Gene Autry with their albums and many other things that they did. But once the shows got away from the singing cowboys and became more adventurous, then you saw that marketing arm just explode. On a related note, I saw my first BB gun and wanted my first BB gun because it was advertised on the back of an old comic book. A friend of my dad's, his son had a big box of old comics, which I loved, and on the back of one of them was an ad for a Daisy BB gun. And there was something about that ad that made me say, hey, I want a Daisy BB gun. Now, as I just said, and as you know, I was into the rifleman at the time, so I saw myself out there with that lever-action BB gun 
I knew I was going to be Lucas McCain. But in talking to my dad and showing that to my dad, he was a member of the JCs during the, the early 1970s, and they had a program where the JCs would sponsor a hunter safety course, and they were able to get Woodstock high quality Daisy BB guns. So my first Daisy BB gun was a really nice gun. It, it had a wood stock. It had the JC Shield logo on the stock. And I took it very seriously. I can remember polishing that thing and keeping it really nice. And then to show you how times change, we had the hunter safety course in our school, in the old gymnasium of our school. They had built a newer auditorium where all the basketball games were. So the old gym, they didn't always have things to do in there. So it was kind of a catch-all. One thing we did was pile up bales of straw, and we used it for target practice with our BB guns. And we learned hunter safety and target shooting right there in the school. Can you imagine today having a gun safety class in the auditorium at a school? <laughs> I know. It's, it, it boggles the mind. But back then, it was the thing that we did. All of us had a great time. You know, Paul, tracking down even half of the authors we've talked about will thin out the wallets of all our listeners. So I'd say our job for this episode is done. Which means it's time for what we are now calling shootouts and shoutouts. There are a number of podcasts, publishers, and other good folks who have been supportive of our show and to whom we owe a vote of thanks. We also like to point out other interesting Western genre resources, which our listeners might find of interest. You'll find links to those we mentioned posted in our show notes. As always, we'd like to thank our main sponsor, Wolfpack Publishing's head honcho, Mike Bray, for helping us keep this podcast rolling along like an episode of Wagon Train or Rawhide. Head him up, move him out. I want to thank the guys over at the Top Rated Voices of the West podcast for having me on their show to talk about the debut of our Six Gun Justice podcast. One of the coolest things is how writers and others involved in the Western genre are happy to welcome new folk onto the trail drive. Also, check out the weekly Paperback Warrior podcast hosted by our compadres Tom Simon and Eric Compton, who are both a blast to hang out with in the Men's Adventure Paperbacks of the 20th Century Facebook group, as well as listening to their always entertaining show. I've recently discovered Western wordslinger Thomas McNulty's entertaining video blog on his YouTube channel, McNulty's Westerns. There's also our buddy Rob Word, who's extremely knowledgeable in the Western field. He has a YouTube channel called A Word on Westerns that really is worth checking out. Then there's Westerns on the Web, which has Western movies, lost episodes of TV shows, and original programming. That sounds terrific. We also appreciate the review copies of new Western novels we've received. We don't have time to get to all of them on the podcast, but we do our best to see they get mentioned on the Six Gun Justice blog and reviewed on Amazon. Next episode, we will be initiating a way to share some of these review copies with interested listeners who would be willing to read them and review them on Amazon. And thanks again to you for listening. Your comments are always welcome at our email address, sixgunjusticewesterns at gmail.com. And remember to swing by our flagship website, sixunjustice.com, where you'll find Westerns-related news, articles, and reviews. If you enjoy what you're hearing, please check out the Six Gun Justice Patreon page and consider making a donation to help us continue to bring you the best of the West. The link is in the show notes and at the top of the sidebar on the Six Gun Justice website. In two weeks, on episode four of the Six Gun Justice podcast, we'll be talking the New West Part 2, looking specifically at the current independent Western writers who are riding the internet range, selling a lot of books, and corralling a ton of fans. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourself, and keep your powder dry.
Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride. Join us in two weeks for another episode of the Six Gun Justice Podcast, sponsored by Wolfpack Publishing, bringing you the best of the West, including the Avenging Angels and Gunslinger series by A.W. Hart and many other best-selling Westerns available on Amazon in ebook and paperback.